All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mine safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson, and with me, as always, is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? Oh, doing all right, Chris. We are cruising right along in uh, 2023. It feels like it's been a fast-moving and eventful year, but I think that's what we're going to talk about here a little bit today. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, on this episode, we're going to discuss our top five issues to watch for from MSHA in 2023. So I'm sure most of our listeners have seen our insight where we wrote an article pretty much on the same thing, but I thought today we would talk a little more in depth on each of these topics, um, you know, kind of reminding operators what they can expect and and give them some, you know, a heads up, kind of how to prepare, right? Kind of next steps, if you will. Um, so what's our first one, Arthur? Looking at um, regulatory activity. Yeah. Yeah. So the rulemaking agenda, and I think part of the reason we wanted to do this, just sort of generally speaking, to talk about this is, you know, MSHA very, it, it's become apparent that MSHA has an agenda, a robust agenda. But what I'm noticing, Chris, if you compare this back to when Joe Maine was assistant secretary or even Dave Zetesla, obviously he came from a different perspective, but both of them pretty much put it out there in, 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 in writing in big, bold lights, right? What their agenda was going to be. You know, I'm not noticing that as much from Chris Williamson, and that's not a knock on Mr. Williamson. That's really just seems to be his style, right? He doesn't seem to be, um, I mean, he has participated in meetings and so forth and, and, and led discussions, but there doesn't seem to be as much, you know, that's that's outwardly stated. So I think what we wanted to do here was kind of raise what we're seeing as the agenda that's definitely coming through and there is an agenda coming through and and the first piece of that is the rulemaking the regulatory agenda no and um so we have uh two two items to talk about and we're gonna you know some of this is going to be reviewed but then we're gonna as chris said we're going to talk about what operators can see so i think first and foremost and emsh has made no secret about this that the silica rule is going to be first on their agenda. And, you know, Chris, a couple of things, I think sort of from a high level perspective that I think are noteworthy, and then I'll get your take on, on what you're expecting from the rule. Number one, it's going to apply to coal and metal, non-metal, which, you know, we're seeing more of that now in the rulemaking context. Uh, Mr. Williamson has made a point that, you know, it's going to be patterned after the OSHA rule. And in his view, Miners are the only ones who don't have the protection of the OSHA rule. Now, we can we can debate that point because obviously MSHA has other protections. But that being said, I don't see him leaving out coal miners or metal non-metal miners. It's going to apply to both. Yeah. Uh, and then the second thing is, you know, we do think it is going to be patterned largely after the OSHA rule. Uh, the levels that were set forth in that rule, which was the subject of a robust litigation and OSHA prevailed. So there's no reason to think that MSHA won't take a, you know, play out of their playbook. So mm -hmm. uh, I think though, to me, those are the two big things. There's some details we probably want to kick around, but what, just what else are you looking forward to or looking toward in this rule when it comes out, proposed rule when it comes out? Yeah. So, I mean, I think two things that I'm looking for, um, sampling frequencies, 
health monitoring obviously is a big one, right? Is that going to change at all under the new standard? Um, and then, well, maybe there's three issues now. So, because <laughs> I just thought of another one. In addition to achieving compliance, can you use uh, PPE, right? So protect personal protective equipment. Can you use right. that to achieve compliance with a lower standard? Basically, can you use an, a respirator um, and then presumably be able to sample that respirator environment, atmosphere to mm -hmm. achieve compliance? Um, I think that's going to be a big one. Um, and then I think the third one was... Um, what do you do if you'd have an overexposure, mm -hmm. right? Are you going to be getting on, um, you know, an increased sampling frequency type of program? You know, right now under uh, a cold dust standard, we see that same type of activity, right? So if MSHA right. comes out um, and it's actually, it's very interesting how the agency will sample on any given shift and they do not have to show, according to MSHA or, you know, the solicitor's office, so the powers that be, MSHA does not currently have to come out and sample on a quote-unquote representative shift, mm -hmm. right? So there can be, um, you know, an, an, at least in the coal environment, like a coal spill on someone, on an individual, resulting in a higher, uh, higher sample level. Um, and MSHA won't necessarily toss that result out. So that... Anomaly, right? So not normal mining conditions could trigger uh, an operator working under a reduced standard and being required to sample more frequently. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to see if this new silica standard will will have language to that effect. Um, you know, causing operators to you know basically go through those same administrative hoops after a sample. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a big deal, obviously, in in the metal non metal context, um, where we don't have that, um, or you know, we have we have something different at the at, at the present time. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess looking down the road, you know, you and I have both been involved in some rulemaking efforts, responses to rulemaking efforts, as have others in our practice group. It's an area that I find interesting because it it really does give. The regulated community a chance to have a voice in the proposed rule. Some some may scoff at that, but I I I don't. I think it's important. You know, you may not get what you want from your comments, but your comments uh, will be read. Your if there's a if there's an open uh, meeting for testimony, which I'm sure there will be in this. You know, your testimony has to be considered. It has to be addressed in the preamble. So, you know, to all the operators and others in, interested out there, if there is an issue, whether it's what Chris has raised or other issues that you have uh, in mind when this proposed rule comes out, please avail yourself of the rulemaking process. I foresee a lengthy period of time for comments and also uh, some opportunities for testimony. So I, I do think the chances will be there. I know the trade associations are working very hard right now in anticipation uh, of this to best serve their members. Um, but I do encourage everyone to take advantage of it, pay close attention, especially to those details, because the, the devil will be in the details in this one. There is no doubt in my mind. So. No, I agree. And I think, um, 
you know, obviously for the larger operators, if you have an IH on staff, an industrial hygienist, um, they're going to want their input too, just in terms of achieving compliance. Um, so kind of like what you're saying, Arthur, right? The devil's in the details. So yeah, how, you know, how are we going to be able to take steps? How are operators going to be able to take steps uh, to comply with a reduced standard? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Become involved in in that in that uh, rulemaking process because so where my understanding of where this rule is at, it's it's recently been sent to OMB, right? So the Office of Management and Budget, where they do among other things, you know, economic um, impact study and look at the rule generally. Um, and that's the final step before we see publication in the federal register of a proposed rulemaking, right? So, right. Yeah. And then Arthur, as you mentioned, then we have a comment period. So yes, mm. we encourage anyone and everyone, all interested parties to submit comments. Right. So now sort of at the other end of the spectrum of rulemaking, um, in terms of the time frame, is the powered haulage rule. And what's interesting is we've had past uh, episodes on this when it was pending as a proposed rule. And um, comments were submitted. Testimony was taken on this. The record has closed. It's been closed for a while. And I, I've heard a, a number of folks within AMSHA comment that this isn't going away. You know, I've heard I've heard some people think, oh, well, maybe that's that powered haulage rule. Remember that? That's just going to die on the vine. No, it's not. It's not going away. Um, but it has been put on the back burner pending this silica rule coming out. So I think once we see the proposed silica rule come out, come out, we will likely see the final uh, a final version of the powered haulage rule, which this process that Chris has described has already been completed. That record is made. So the next step in that powered haulage rule is the publication of a final rule. So I guess, you know, that we, we've we had some discussion about uh, parts of that rule in the past. I think going forward, what we really want to see is obviously, one, again, what's in the rule? What are the details in the rule? And then there were a number of points raised in the rulemaking record of uh, points of ambiguity, points that weren't clear, what's going to be required of the... Um, the operators with respect to this plan they uh, for powered haulage for keeping up with technological advances how are contractors going to be regulated in this there are a lot of open questions that people just didn't have answers to we need to see if the rule answers those questions and if not is msha going to hold information sessions you know if you think back to the workplace examination rule after that came out in its various iterations, MSHA did host a number of info sessions. Um, I would hope they would do the same with respect to this powered haulage rule uh, when it comes out, because there are going to be a lot of questions. So that's the first thing I'm looking forward to, Chris. No, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think there were a lot of questions raised in the comments, like you mentioned. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, I'll be interested to see how MSHA addresses those, right? And um, you know, I guess in MSHA's eyes, maybe it's not an easy matter to kind of walk that fine line between, you know, creating a rule or requirement that isn't overburdensome and yet still has some level of purpose. <laughs> right? right. And so, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, how are they going to kind of balance those interests and in dealing with, you know, and, and, and again, as we've discussed on past episodes, right. Um, 
you know, the contractor issue, right? Where who has a plan, what plan controls, what's in the plan. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, a lot of unanswered questions. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what MSHA, what MSHA comes out with. So. And I, one last thing before we move on to our next topic is, is you know, that the Mine Act does allow that within 60 days of a rule, uh, a final rule coming out, that there is the opportunity for challenging it legally in a circuit court of appeals. Um, we've been involved in that type of a challenge in the past. Um, and, you know, what? so we'll have to see, you know, I'm not going to... Uh, um, um, speculate if there's going to be a challenge or not. I, I I don't know if there's going to be a challenge or not, but but a couple of things to see that uh, if there is, there can be a challenge to the entirety of the rule or there can be a challenge to, to pieces of the rule. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, and it only takes one party to say, hey, look, we want to raise it. We want to raise the challenge. And then they're kind of carrying the, the flag for the whole industry. Right. They do, yeah. But, um, you know, that that's obviously something to keep an eye on whether or not that'll happen. I have no idea. And even if I did, I probably couldn't divulge it on the podcast, but, but I really don't have any idea. So, um, but anyway, let's, uh, let's talk about our next topic. Again, if, if those of you that have had a chance to read our insight, this is just, you know, our, our take on the top five things we're looking forward to or, or anticipating in, 2023. Um, and the next one's enforcement. Now we've talked on this podcast and other times about the difference between mandatory enforcement and discretionary enforcement, right? Mandatory enforcement is the twos and fours MSHA has to do to comply with the Mine Act. They have to respond to uh, 103G complaints by miners. They have to investigate 105C complaints, which we'll talk about more in a second. Um, that's mandatory stuff, right? That no matter who's in charge at MSHA, that is going to happen because they're required to under the law. But as I think we all know, MSHA has a lot of discretionary tools in the toolbox, as they like to say, and enhanced enforcement, special investigations, initiatives, um, policy directives, and that type of thing. Now, some of that stuff we can track. We do have our violations tracker that we do uh, utilize to track that. Others of it, we just hear about anecdotally. So Chris, obviously without naming client names or div divulging information, you can't. Big picture from an anecdotal perspective, are you seeing more of the discretionary enforcement from MSHA in your practice? Yes. <clears throat> yes. I'm um and it's interesting when you because you, you had made mention at the beginning of this particular episode, you know, what is MSHA's agenda under uh, Assistant Secretary Williamson? And I suspect he's given the marching orders uh, you know, not along the lines of Joe Main and just not, you know, putting it up in bright lights. Um but protecting miners' rights. So I've seen a marked increase in um, just hazard complaint activities, mm -hmm. um, you know, warranted or not. And then certainly, and then we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, right? But whistleblower type actions. Um, but then, you know, related to the hazard complaints, I'm seeing um, at least more inquiry into supervisor knowledge. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, 
I can't necessarily say I've seen a lot more 110Cs. So if everybody remembers, 110C of the Mine Act authorizes MSHA to issue a civil penalty against an agent of a company for a knowing type violation, right? Knowing or should have known about a violation. Um, I've seen on, on regular inspections, MSHA asking along those lines, like who knew about this? Um, you know, should someone have known about this? And so we're seeing, you know, an effort, I think, by the agency to, uh, you know, look at and analyze minors' rights in terms of enforcement, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Have you seen something similar, Arthur, in your practice? I have. And actually, I have seen an increase in 110 yeah. investigations, formal, yeah. formal investigations. Yeah, you know, it's um, and that that's sporadic, you know, that's that's based on the type of issuances that are order the type of uh, issuances that are that are out there um but uh yes absolutely i have seen some of the those more pointed questions seen additional 110 mm -hmm. um investigations you know there is a, a, a msha has made this public so i'm not saying anything that's not public but there is a mine that's been put on pattern of violations mm -hmm. yeah um, you know, we went a while without hearing anything about pattern of violations. That's sort of the ultimate discretionary tool in the toolbox. So, you know, I, we're, we're seeing it, you know, we're definitely seeing this and this regime within AMSHA is, has found its footing, um, and, and is utilizing those tools. And I just think that probably doesn't come as a surprise, but we didn't really see it initially, um, but I think we are now, at least, at least I am. And I know you say you are too, Chris and others in our practice. And again, this is just anecdotal what we see out there, but, but we're definitely seeing it. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen any formal announcement made, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's definitely what I'm seeing in, yeah. in terms of operators experiences recently. Yeah. So I guess for operators out there, again, this uh, it probably doesn't come as much surprise, you know, we've said this before, but it's it's all about redoubling those compliance efforts and also those efforts for how you're going to manage uh, interactions with MSHA, including some, you know, potentially unique, unique questions you might get that you might not have gotten before. Like Chris mentioned, you know, if you if inspectors start asking questions about management knowledge, what are the bigger implications of that? You know, we need to make sure our personnel who are with MSHA on these inspections um, have the knowledge they need. So, um, you know, it's just more to keep a lookout for and uh, we'll continue to, to bring our insights that we see. Um, our next item, I don't think we're going to spend too much time on because we've actually just done two episodes on our last <laughs> two episodes. Right. We're talking about settlement <clears throat> review uh continues to be an issue um those of you who listened to our last episode know we talked about this in detail about sort of the 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 interagency battle between the department of labor solicitor's office and the federal mine safety and health review commission which are separate agencies i still have people ask me that um are they really separate yes they are <laughs> they're separate right. agencies fair question um and uh over settlement authority. So, you know, this is one we 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 really hit this hard in our last episode. So I don't think we're going to spend a ton of time on it now, but this is one I think operators just need to keep an eye on because our interest as operators and as counsel for operators is if 
once a matter's settled, for that settlement to go through efficiently and with certainty. Um, I will tell you, I recently had a, a settlement motion get kicked back for a, additional justification, which we did provide, and it was it was approved ultimately. But you know, so we are seeing we are seeing that uh, more and more. I think so. Any anything else on the the settlement issue, Chris? So yes, quickly, funny story. Hmm. I was negotiating a settlement with uh, CLR. And the CLR asked me, do, do I think we have enough information to get the settlement approved? <laughs> and so I, um, yeah, we got, we're actually worked together to make sure, yeah, we had the, 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 um, the requisite facts present, right. To justify mm -hmm. the, uh, the reductions. So I just thought that was amusing and informative really, right. Because, you know, obviously we had talked about this in a past episode and then, you know, real life experience, I think the CLRs at least have been made aware that that's an issue saying, hey, you know, make sure you're, you've got enough information um, in your settlement motions, right? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's definitely an issue on the forefront with uh, at least, you know, CLRs. So. Good point there. And that, the, you know, you as the operator's representative and the CLR as MSHA's representative work together. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that does happen where, um, depending on the issue, there are times when um, the operator and, and MSHA and sometimes even labor are all on the same page to achieve yeah. the objective. Um, so, you know, there, when those situations happen, it's, it's uh, don't, um, you know, don't be skeptical of that. I mean, if we need to work together with a side that you were usually adverse to, then that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. The next thing we, we've uh, we've identified, and I, I, this is another one. I think we're going to talk anecdotally about it, right? I mean, there's not a lot of data out there. Um, I, I don't anticipate there will be unless somebody really does some investigative work on it. Is is the personnel issue? But MSHA has been upfront about the fact that, like other employers, uh, they're experiencing staffing shortages. There's been a, during the height of COVID, they had personnel retire, uh, move on to other jobs, and maybe that was going to happen anyway. You know, um, people reach retirement age of the government, and 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 they and they move on. Um, and they've had challenges in bringing in new personnel. There's some initiatives out there to recruit, uh, recruit straight out of colleges. You know people who may not have uh, the the usual um, years of mining experience. Maybe they're coming straight from a college. Maybe they're coming from an alternate career path. You know, just like our clients are having to do to, to attract personnel, so does MSHA. So Chris, question for you. Have you seen this rear its head yet in your practice? And second question is what, should operators be on the lookout for, you know, assuming these initiatives take root and, and MSHA brings in new personnel through these alternate avenues, what should we be looking for? Yeah, so absolutely, I've seen this. Um, uh, recently, I was out on an accident investigation and, um, you know, anyone involved in an MSHA accident investigation knows MSHA sends out you know, a lead accident investigator, maybe a couple of support inspectors 
Um, heck, maybe even the ADM, Assistant District Manager for Enforcement, will be out there as well. Um, on a recent one, we had no less than three trainees mm -hmm. uh, present. And, um, you know, all from various backgrounds, most of them mining. One was from construction. Um, but they were, you know, obviously out there to kind of figure out and see how this all worked, right? Emrish's you know, has a number of procedures and policies that they follow, um, you know, obviously not during just accident investigations, but inspections and, and, and on all that and everything that entails. Um, but yeah, so they're, they're full on into, you know, recruiting and training mode. Um, and also I've heard from a number of operators uh, where they have had inspectors out on regular inspections and they have had a trainee or two with them. Mm. Um, and that inspector has cited conditions that have either existed for a number of years that that same inspector had not cited before mm -hmm. or, right, had cited something that they've never cited before. So even if it, um, you know, hadn't been, you know, sort of approved, if you will. Um, and, and I've gotten comments to the effect of, I think the inspector, and this is from the operator's terms, right? Saying they think the inspector is only citing this condition because uh, he had a trainee or mm -hmm. she had a trainee with them. Um, which, yeah, which is which is interesting. So I'm not sure if it's a training exercise, right? Hey, this is how you uh, get a citation vacated, or <laughs> is it is it a genuine, you know, uh, citation? I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't proceeded that far down the path, but absolutely. Um, and in terms of what operators should be aware of, yes, once an inspector has a trainee, it does change the dynamic of an inspection. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, you know, I don't know if those inspectors performing the training are, you know, quote unquote, going by the book or um, or what, right? What their what their motive is in citing certain conditions when they do have a trainee with them. But yes, operators should be aware that that does change the dynamic. Understand that trainees' background could be helpful. Understanding what their background is could be helpful. But it's really the lead inspector who's you know kind of taking those on. Yeah. But as these new inspectors in training are released to the field, so to speak, right, and they're conducting inspections on their own, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, you're going to have to be a little more patient, I think. You're going to have to kind of take the tact of educating the inspector, saying, hey, this is the, you know, the processes and procedures we have in place um, and make sure that they understand what they're looking at. Because, you know, with these with these inspectors and all of their various backgrounds and experience, you know, it's not going to necessarily be, you know, business as usual. Right. You, right. you may have seen the same inspector for, you know, a number of quarters or a number of, you know, regular inspections. Um and that, yeah, that will change, right, as, as new inspectors come on board. Yeah. I think it just throws another variable into the into the equation, right? Um, you know, we've talked in the past about managing an MSHA inspection is so much about the personnel. It's who the MSHA inspector is, who the operator's representative is, what's the relationship, and, and you know, and recognizing the inspector is there to do a job, and, and, the, and the company representative is also to, there to do a job, um, but there's so many variables, you know, but I, I do think in the last 
few years, we've seen other variables. We've seen, you know, closing of certain districts. And so you've had inspectors move from certain districts to other districts. Um, we've seen the, the, the one MSHA or it had been called blurring of the lines, whatever we're calling it now, or coal and metal, non-metal. We've seen crossover between the inspectors and, 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 you know, operators have, have worked through that. I know there've been some frustrations through that. Um, but let's be real. There's, there've been frustrations from veteran MSHA inspectors who had years of industry experience too right so we had they're just different frustrations right yes you know it's very good point absolutely you know it's it's just another variable um but i do think it's something for operators to keep an eye on i you know i got a message from a client um a little while back they had a a brand new inspector that had just gotten his ar card had never been to a site like theirs and they had to take extra time Mm -hmm. to make sure he understood what what was going on um so we'll just have to see you know i i I it it, it all comes down to you know managing that inspection as best you can but recognizing um this is another variable but you know if 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 we start noticing trends in this regard we will we will obviously bring that to your attention um the last topic again we're just kind of sort of a scattershot of topics here the we the we see is is really key in the this being the first quarter of 2023 is whistleblower. Um, 105C is the whistleblower provision under the Mine Act. We talked earlier about the fact that if a if a complaint is filed by a miner, it is mandatory for MSHA to investigate it, right? No matter how small or frivolous you think it might be. MSHA has to investigate it. They they cannot decline it at that stage of when the complaint comes in the door. Uh, That being said, I think there's a couple of points that MSHA has discretion over. One is whether they take the case and and litigate it on behalf of the minor, or they're going to do more of those or less of those. Um, That's within MSHA's discretion. And two, you know, backing up a step, um, is, you know, you know, 105 C has been in the mine act for, for the, its existence, but is MSHA going to have additional resources and information, um, out there to raise awareness of 105 C? Because I think what we've seen in the past, and I think MSHA would agree when they've done more of that, there have been more complaints, I have a slide that I use in a presentation on 105C that's a quote from Joe Main at an NSSGA conference that he talks about our efforts, our being MSHA's efforts to educate the mining community has resulted in a record number of complaints being filed. So the more education there is, the more promoting there is of this provision under the Mine Act, I think we're going to see more complaints out there. Um you know, we can debate whether that's the right thing to do or whether that's what MSHA should be doing, or maybe that's probably for another time. I think for purposes of this podcast is if we're going to see increased um, promotion of 105C by the agency, we're going to see an increase in complaints. And Chris, I, I think we're already seeing that, aren't we? Yes. Yes, we are. And I would... um 
I would encourage operators, you know, obviously everybody goes through training, new minor training experience, minor training, annual refresher, you know, whatever it might be. And part of that training, right, is covering minors' rights. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, operators really need to understand minors' rights and how that works. Also understand that operators can manage their workforce, right? MSHA does not have the ability to interfere with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the problem is, is sort of finding the balance between the two, right? Protecting minors' rights and then protecting an operator's ability to you know, manage its workforce. Um, and I, I, I see that's where a lot of these issues really center upon. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just training information, understanding that it is out there and that, yeah, I mean, you may get one of these complaints and you go through the investigation process. Um, you know, you may disagree wholeheartedly with the, the allegations and that's fine. That's your right to do so. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's a system that, that you mentioned, Arthur, right, that is in place and it has to play out, right? MSHA gets one of these complaints, they uh, they can and should investigate those complaints. Um, and so I think, you know, any operator with questions, it is a, it is a complex process, right, involving, uh, you know, obviously supervisors, human resources, um, you know, mind leadership and management. I mean, it can mm -hmm. it can run the whole gamut of of issues. So they can be very complex. Um, and so, yeah, I would encourage any operator that if they get these types of complaints to work through them, probably with counsel, right? Right. Um, and yeah, we're seeing. I think, and and you're exactly right too, Arthur. Just in terms of right, it seems like the more education and push from MSHA that is out there the more complaints that we see uh, filed and not necessarily legitimate complaints, right? But right. Um, I think just a higher number of complaints overall. And maybe, you know, who knows, maybe this is tied to MSHA's activity on social media, right? I know they created a the app. miners rights app. Yeah. And as we, as we heard on the most recent stakeholder call that MSHA is now on, on Facebook. So, you know, give them a like and a visit or, <laughs> a thumbs up. I'm not sure what you do on the Facebook, but yeah. How about yourself? Have you seen an in, in, increase? I, I have, you know, across our practice. I think we've seen some more of these come in the door. We've also seen some more issues being raised, you know, that could, if somebody's thinking, oh, there, there may be a complaint filed. So we've definitely seen some more activity on that. Yeah. Um, you know, the one thing I, I try to emphasize whenever I do a training or talk to a client about 105C, about the whistleblower is it's, in my experience, it's these frontline supervisors that get caught up in these issues involving 105C because they're the ones that have to, that are usually managing the workforce on the front line. They're the ones that have to respond to you know, is this, this employee has, has he or she made a safety complaint or is that a safety complaint? Is that protected? Um, is that a protected work refusal? If that is, what do I do about it? And being a frontline supervisor is a demanding job with a lot of pressures in any circumstance. So now when you're kind of given one of these curveballs in the middle of the day that you're not expecting, 
if that supervisor doesn't react perfectly, or maybe they do react correctly, but it's perceived differently. They're the ones that get caught up in this. They're the ones that are going to be interviewed and it's their responses that are going to get called into question. So I, I advise operators train those folks. You, we owe it to those folks. They work very hard for us. Train those folks on what is protected activity. What is a protected work refusal? What do I? What are my responsibilities if I'm faced with this type of thing? Because, you know, the last thing anyone wants to do is get involved in one of these. And oh, did I do something wrong? And and now we have an issue. Um, nobody wants to do anything wrong. Everyone's trying to do their best. So please, operators out there, give these folks the training they need. Um, so they can do their jobs as best they can. I, I, I say that that's sort of my, my overarching, uh, <laughs> lesson that I give on 105C. So, <laughs> well, that's such, I mean, yeah, that's such a great point. Um, giving these guys just the tools and knowledge, right? Those frontline supervisors. Yeah. Because so many instances, right. You see there, nobody's trying to do anything intentional, but Again, right, as you mentioned, it's the perception, right? It's the perception of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's such a great point, Arthur. Yeah, really good. Well, I think that that's sort of our, our, our five key issues that we've identified that we're looking at for 2023. Um, oh. <clears throat> we are moving along through the year, and, and I think we're seeing all of this come to pass. Um, obviously, you know, things can change as the year progresses. And, and as we see additional trends, we're going to bring that to you. We are going to tease this a little bit. We do, we are looking forward to having a, a guest soon uh, to also talk about some of these trends in mind safety, sort of from a big picture perspective. We'll, we'll leave it at that. We won't yeah. tease it too much, but. Uh, Very exciting. Yeah. So uh, I guess, um, you know, with that being said, Chris, it's busy times for all of us. Everybody out there is busy, I know. Uh, but just keep doing your best. And, and you know, we're here as a resource uh, uh, to bring you the information as best we can. So Absolutely. any last thoughts uh, along those lines, Chris? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, keep your head up. I know it could be challenging at times, particularly when, uh, you know, like MSHA, right, where you suffer, you know, employee shortages um, and you're asked to take, you know, take on more roles at the various operations um, and then reach out and reach out when it gets hard and difficult. You know, I had to do that in a recent case where I'm getting pulled in too many directions and, you know, you bring in one of your partners. Um, so yeah, you can seek out, you know, sort of the same support group with, um, you know, at your own operations, right? So take care of yourselves and keep working safe. And obviously, we're here to help if you guys have any questions. Thanks, everyone. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.